Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 24, Conrad II's Acquisition of Burgundy. I know, you've opened this with some trepidation thinking, is he going to tell some more weird legends again? Or are we getting the podcast we've signed up for? No worries, and this episode will be entirely fact-based. I still hope you enjoyed meeting the King of Grippia and the Flat Hooves, and if not, I'm sorry for taking away seven minutes of your life that you'll never get back. But now, as promised, let us go for some hard-nosed dynastic politics. As you may have heard in the last few episodes, there is a major political issue brewing in the background since around 1000. The last King of Burgundy, Rudolf III, has failed to produce an heir. So now the vulture has been circling the kingdom for most of his 40-year reign. Before we go into the intricacies of the Burgundian succession, let us first talk about what Burgundy is. Those of you with exceptional memory may recall episode 4, when we discussed the three different Burgundies. But since I myself can barely remember how it works, here it is again. The name of Burgundy goes back to a Germanic tribe that occupied a territory comprising more or less the Italian region of Piedmont, the French-speaking Switzerland, and the current French regions of Bourgogne, Franche-Comté, Rhône-Alpes, Provence, and Côte d'Azur. The area kept its name, but went through multiple hands, including being the core territory of the Kingdom of Lothar, created in 843. After the Kingdom of Lothar had fallen in the late 9th century, the area of Burgundy broke up into three parts. The first one is the region that we today know as Burgundy. That became the Duchy of Burgundy, which, to confuse everybody, is not part of the Kingdom of Burgundy. The Kingdoms of Burgundy were originally two, Upper and Lower Burgundy. These were united under King Rudolf II with a lot of help from Henry the Fowler and Otto the Great in the early 10th century. The kingdom looks quite impressive on the map, but its kings were very weak. Similar to the kings of France, the kings of Burgundy had little control over their vassals. Tietmar of Merseburg said about Rudolf III that there was no king like him. All he has is his title and a crown. He awards the bishoprics to anyone the local magnates demand, and there is no count who does not act as independent as a duke. The king really only controlled the region around Lac Léman, so that's western Switzerland, centered on the bishoprics of Geneva, Lausanne, Sitten, the states of Vevey and Orbe, and the monasteries of Saint-Maurice, Romontier and Peterlingen. Yes, this is today real estate worth quizillions, but in 1030 it was a nice but ultimately modest possession, the value of which lay mainly in the control of the Alpine passes. The local magnates, including the future Dukes of Savoy and the Counts of Provence, acknowledged a nominal overlordship of the king, but otherwise did as they pleased. Very similar to the situation in France at the same time. The absence of a central power allowed for constant feuding between lords and the emergence of proper robber barons, all of which put immeasurable pain on the local peasantry. At the same time the kingdom came under external pressure, mainly from the Duke of Burgundy, Otto Wilhelm, who was the son of Adalbert, former king of Italy and adversary of Otto the Great in his Italian wars. Some of these families are just irrepressible. If you want to fully geek out on Burgundies, there is actually a fourth one. Because Otto Wilhelm at some point lost the Duchy of Burgundy and was reduced to a territory around Besançon, which he christened 
the County of Burgundy. And since the county was part of the Holy Roman Empire rather than France, it became called the Free County of Burgundy, or in French, the Franche Comté. Okay, let's leave it here. The Franche Comté will not be on the test. I guess from what I said so far, it is clear that the Kingdom of Burgundy is not a great prize. But whoever took it on would gain prestige, a title, and control access to Italy. The latter is what mattered most to the Empress, since owning Burgundy means that the King of France would not be able to deploy troops into Italy. Now, Because of this strategic situation, the Empress have been involved in Burgundy since the 930s. Family ties were close, most famously as the formidable Adelheid, wife of Otto the Great, was the daughter of a previous King of Burgundy. Equally, the mother of Emperor Henry II was a daughter of again another King of Burgundy. In line with family ties, the Emperor would regularly provide military support to keep the rickety kingdom going and in return the King of Burgundy would regularly attend the imperial court. So for all intents and purposes, Burgundy was a vassal state of the Empire, but that relationship had never been formalised as such until 1016. In that year, Emperor Henry II made the support of another Burda skirmish conditional upon Rudolf III formally promises him to make him heir. In a lavish ceremony, Rudolf handed crown and scepter of Burgundy to Henry II, who handed it back to him, which should be understood as Rudolf becoming Henry II's vassal. Had Rudolf III had the decency to die before his nephew Henry II, all would have been okay. As it happens, the old codger clung on to life, whilst Henry II, though 20 years younger, succumbed to his wide range of illnesses. Now we have a problem. Henry II would claim Burgundy both on the grounds of being its overlord and the fact that he is Rudolf's nephew and hence one of his closest relatives. Conrad II had no such personal claim. Yes, he is sort of related since his wife Gisela is a niece of Rudolf III, but to be frank, there are another two nieces and a sister, all married to powerful aristocrats. One of these powerful aristocrats is Odo, Count of Blois and Champagne, one of the quasi-independent French magnates whose land lay just north of Burgundy. Conrad, as always, tried to get on the front foot. His argument was that he may not have the personal claim, but that the Empire had an institutional claim on Burgundy. We have already heard that view of the Empire being a separate entity from the Emperor when Conrad told the citizens of Pavia off for destroying the royal palace. Here it is again, just with a lot more significance than the Pavia example. As ever, subtle legal arguments work a lot better when they come with sharp and pointy things attached. Conrad may not have been a legal scholar of great renown, but he did know how to yield a sword. Already in 1025, so within months of his coronation, he occupied Basel, a city Rudolf had snatched immediately after Henry II's death. He took the opportunity to appoint a tame cleric as Bishop of Basel without even consulting with Rudolf, who was nominally required to acknowledge the appointment. The demonstration of force plus intervention by the actual heiress, Empress Gisela, had the desired effect. An agreement was reached, and Rudolf showed up Conrad's coronation in Rome in 1027. So as agreed, Rudolf ordered the insignia of the Burgundian crown to be sent to Conrad upon his death, which duly happened on September 6, 1032. 
So far, so good. Where things became unstuck was when it came to the Burgundian nobles. They had gotten so used to a feeble king, the last thing they wanted was the powerful and energetic Conrad taking over. They very much preferred the much less resourceful Odo of Blois, who was invited to come to Burgundy. It seems Odo was a bit unclear what he was really doing there, so instead of aiming for a quick election and coronation, he wandered round Burgundy collecting the odd acclamation, but mainly plundering and trying to expand his territory. Hesitation is something Conrad II did not suffer from. As soon as he heard of Rudolf's death, he jumped on a horse and he rode hell for leather to Burgundy. The slight difficulty was that he was on the Polish border at the time, a good thousand kilometers from Burgundy. But by Christmas he had made it to Strasbourg and on February 2nd he gathered his Burgundian supporters in the Abbey of Peterlingen, where he was duly elected and crowned King of Burgundy. Not by many, but he was elected. That was a smart move, as Odo's wavering meant he was the only crowned king who could claim legitimacy. But legitimacy alone does not equate to control, and Odo had captured a large number of strongholds across Burgundy. So Conrad got to work besieging one after the other. It was a miserably cold winter. A winter so cold that the horses would literally freeze into the ground overnight so that they could only be freed with axes and stakes. The men were frozen so that their faces were constantly white with frost and even the beardless adolescents looked like old men. One man could not find help to free his horse. He killed it and skinned it upwards as it stood. Basically, it was Stannis Baratheon's attack on Winterfell. But other than Stannis, Conrad knew when enough was enough and retreated to Zurich, where he received homage from some more Burgundian magnates who were disappointed with Odo's indecisiveness. The other move was for Conrad to sign an agreement with King Henry of France. Not that Henry has much power or resources, given France has been in a more or less perennial civil war following the long and disastrous reign of his father Robert II. In the 1030s we have the houses of Anjou and Blois fighting over supremacy, whilst the king looks on. Now at this particular point in time Henry had sided with the Anjou, so allowed Conrad to enter French territory to devastate the homelands of Odo. Seeing his home under threat, Odo had to hurry back home and give up positions in Burgundy. In the next year, 1034, Conrad finally puts the boot in and attacks Burgundy on two fronts. One army is coming down from Germany, whilst his allies in Italy, the Archbishop of Milan and the Count of Canossa, bring up an Italian army. I'm not sure, but that might be the only time the Italian possessions of the Empire ever provided support to imperial policy outside Italy. Odo of Blois was beaten, and he had to give up all his possessions in Burgundy and return home. He will remain hostile, but when he attacks again in 1037 he gets comprehensively beaten by the Duke of Lothringia, in a battle where Odo himself dies. And with that, Conrad is universally acknowledged as ruler of Burgundy. However, he soon passes the crown on to his son, the future King Henry III, who actually has a hereditary claim to the throne through his mother Gisela. Henry III will become the by far and away most powerful secular lord in Germany. He is already Duke of Bavaria since the age of 11, 
He'll become Duke of Swabia after his stepbrother Hermann died and is now King of Burgundy. He controls all the Alpine passes, which means he's in de facto in control of imperial policy in Italy as well. This shows more clearly than anything how salient policy differed from the Ottonians, who usually appointed local lords as dukes into vacant duchies. And from then on until 1648, the lands of Burgundy, which comprises most of southeastern France, including the Provence, the lands around Lyon, Macon, Besançon, remained part of the empire. How much use Burgundy was is debatable, though. Neither Conrad nor any of his successors will make serious attempts to streamline the Burgundian kingdom in the same way they did Germany and they actually tried in Italy. The magnates of Burgundy remained semi-independent, the only effective control was over the royal heartlands around Lac Lemont and the main Alpine passes, that's the Mont Cenis and the Saint Bernard. That kept the French out of Italy, which was the main objective in the first place. As for the lands of the Kingdom of Burgundy itself, in particular Provence, Franche-Comté and Alsace, they kept a somewhat separate status, even after they had become under French suzerainty in around 1648, and they still have quite a distinct character. Now before we leave the western frontier, there's another topic that always plays a role in the region, and that is Lothringia. As you may remember, the very large duchy of Lothringia had been split up in two by Otto the Great in the 950s. Since then, the respective dukes of Upper and Lower Lothringia played a complex game of three-dimensional chess between the emperors, the local powerful families like the Luxembourgs, the powerful bishops and the King of France. By 1030, the Counts of Flanders had to be added to the mix, as they had built another coherent territorial polity just across the border in French territory. Amidst all this, the Duke of Upper Lothringia died without a male heir. He had two daughters who became wards of the Empress Gisela, but no son. For once, Conrad did not invest his son Henry III with a vacant duchy. Instead, Conrad decided that Lothringia needed to be streamlined. And so he reunited it under Gozzolo, the former duke of Lower Lothringia. That created on the one hand an entity that could assert itself against the rising powers of the counts, whilst being able to repel attacks such as the assault of Odo of Blois in 1037. But on the other hand, it created a new centre of power that could challenge the emperor, swings and roundabouts. But so much for the western border. The east, and in particular Poland, had been a major challenge to imperial power pretty much since the Slavic uprising of 983. Henry II, despite being the most domestically powerful German ruler since Otto the Great, had comprehensively failed to control Boleslav the Brave. Henry, saintly or not, had even allied himself with the pagan Liuzzi against the Christian Poles, to no avail. Since 1018, Poland and the Empire maintained a somewhat uncomfortable truce which allowed the Empire to focus on Italy and domestic affairs, while Boleslav continued his astounding string of successes by invading the Rus and occupying Kiev. When Henry II died in 1024, Boleslav used the opportunity to again assert his claim to be king, an honour he believed had been awarded to him by Otto III at the Congress of Gniezno. Henry II never acknowledged that title and consistently referred to him as Duke Boleslav. Irrespective of whether he was already king or not, Boleslav had himself crowned King of Poland 
sometime around the end of 1024 or early 1025, i.e. during the period that Conrad II was ascertaining his position in Germany. Bolislav died shortly afterwards and was succeeded by his son Mieszko II, who had himself crowned in December 1025 in Gniezno. Conrad protested, but was at that point preoccupied with consolidating his rule in Germany and the upcoming expedition to Italy. Whilst Conrad was in Italy, the German opposition around Duke Ernst of Swabia and the Lothringian dukes tried to build links to the King of Poland. Around 1026, the Duchess Matilda, mother of Conrad the Younger, sent Mieszko a valuable manuscript, which in one of the pictures shows Mieszko enthroned as king. In the accompanying letter, she praises him for his excellent education, honour and charity, and calls him the invincible king who has been granted the royal diadem by the grace of God. This combination of flattery and high treason, however, did not yield the material support to Duke Ernst's rebellion. Only by 1028 did Mieszko II act. What has driven that is unclear, but it may well be the developing links between Conrad and King Canute, which would culminate in the marriage of Henry III with Canute's daughter Gunhilda eight years later. Remember that Canute's kingdom comprised not just England but Denmark and the large parts of the Baltic coast, making him Poland's neighbour to the north. Mieszko II begins a kind of guerrilla war with Conrad, where he avoids an open battle and lures the imperial troops into the endless swamps and forests of Poland, where the horses are useless and armour cumbersome. But despite his smart tactics, success eluded him. Once his father managed to put the fear of God into all his neighbours, expanding Poland at the expense of the Empire, of Bohemia and of the Kievan Rus, his son lacked the authority required. Furthermore, he was not the only son of Bolesław. His brother, and I will now properly embarrass myself, called Besprim, had been contesting the father's will and had fled to Russia. Now, Mieszko's three enemies created a powerful coalition, taking back the lands Bolesław had gained. The Grand Prince of the Kievan Rus attacked Poland from the north with the intention of putting Besprim on the throne. The Duke of Bohemia came from the south, taking back Moravia, and the Emperor came from the west, taking back the county of Lusatia, that Henry II had to grant to Bolesław. In 1031, after a string of defeats, Mieszko was expelled from Poland, and his half-brother Besprim was put on the throne by the Grand Prince of Kiev. Besprim immediately reconciled with the Emperor by sending him the royal insignia of Poland, thereby renouncing the royal title. However, his reign did not last long. There are reports of riots caused partially by Besprim's persecution of Mieszko's followers, and he was murdered after just a year. Mieszko II came back to Poland in 1033, but gave up his hostility towards the Empire. He submitted unconditionally to Conrad at a royal assembly in Merseburg. He gave up his pretensions of kingship and reverted to being a mere duke. But that was not enough. Conrad ordered Poland to be split up amongst the three surviving members of the Piast dynasty, with Mieszko just as an overlord. That separation did not last long as Mieszko's two contenders met violent ends. But after the upheaval of the last decade, order was almost impossible to restore. The peasants revolted and the aristocrats expanded their positions. 
So when Mesco finally died, his wife and his little son, Casimir, fled to the court of Conrad II. Casimir made several attempts to regain control, which initially failed. We'll talk more about Casimir's return to the throne when we talk about Henry III's reign. As for Conrad, he had effectively broken the Polish hegemony of the eastern lands and recovered Lusatia. This is something his predecessor Henry II had been unable to do, though his adversary was Boleslav the Brave, one of the most accomplished soldiers and politicians of the age. Now, management of the Polish border was given to the last descendant of Markgraf Eckhard of Meissen. He is most famous for being married to Uta von Ballenstedt, whose sculpture on the Cathedral of Naumburg is one of the most recognizable pieces of medieval art. In the 1930s, she was appropriated both by the Nazis as the ideal Aryan woman and by Walt Disney as the evil queen in Snow White. When Umberto Eco was asked which woman of European art he would most like to spend an evening with, he replied, in first place, ahead of all others, Uta of Naumburg. I will put a picture of her in the blog on the website so you can make up your own mind. The issue with the countries of the eastern side of the empire is that they are a system of communicating vessels. If one goes down, another one goes up. So when Poland went down, Bohemia came up. The Duke of Bohemia, Udalrich, had benefited materially from Mieszko's weakness and recaptured Moravia, which had been lost to Boleslav the Brave 20 years earlier. He even managed to capture Mieszko when he had to flee from his half-brother. Udalrich offered to hand Mieszko over to Conrad II, who famously replied that he would not buy an enemy from another enemy. Despite these strong words, the rise in Bohemian power caused concern in the empire. So when by 1033 Mieszko and Poland had become embroiled in their internal fighting, Conrad sent an army under the nominal command of his son Henry III to Bohemia. Udalrich had to submit to Conrad, who deposed him. Bohemia was split up again, and the main part was given to Jaromir, the brother of Udalrich, whilst Moravia was given to Udalrich's son, Bratislav. Now by 1034, Conrad changed his mind upon pressure of Bohemian magnates and gives Udalrich the duchy to rule jointly with his brother Jaromir. No prizes for what happens next. Udalrich takes over the whole of the duchy and blinds his brother Jaromir. So that is not quite what Conrad wanted, so he would have had to invade Bohemia again, had not the sudden death of Udalrich solved that problem. Udalrich's son, Bratislav, was made duke of the now reunified Bohemia. He paid homage to Conrad, provided hostages, and promised to help with an expedition against the Slavs. But we'll hear more about Bratislav later. Yes, the Slavs, or more precisely the Liuzzi, former allies of Henry II, are still around. Though they paid tribute to the empire, they were still independent and largely pagan. With Poland and Bohemia now under control, the natural next step had to be to strengthen the control over the Slav lands between Elbe and Oder. However, there was a real problem in justifying an attack. The Liuzzi had been allies and were paying tribute. There were regular raids by probably both sides into each other's territory, but assigning blame was difficult. In 1033, a Saxon count called Ludger had been killed by the Slavs together with 40 of his comrades. Now the Slavs claimed that it was the Saxons who had provoked the fight and they had only acted in self-defense. As there were no Christian witnesses, the emperor, on advice from his princes, proposed to determine the veracity of the respective claims through a trial by combat. 
the Saxons put up a fighter who was full of the Christian faith, but, as the chronicler Vipo said, did not take seriously that God is the truth and decides all and everything in his proper judgment. The heathens, on the other hand, put up a fighter whose one and only focus was the truth. The Slav fought hard and fair until the Christian defender was hit and fell. Now that judgment was clear for all to see. There was just no reason to go to war against the Liuzzi. The Saxons and Conrad had to abandon their expedition. To pacify the border, Conrad built a strong fortification at Verban on the Elbe River. The following year, they finally got their castle's belly. The Liuzzi, it says, had taken the castle of Verban by treachery and killed or captured the garrison left there by Conrad. Now that might be true, or we may have an early version of the Gleibitz incident. In any event, Conrad mobilizes his army and enters the territory east of the Elbe River. As his army marches around the land of the Liuzzi, they burn and devastate it, but leave the fortifications and towns alone. The emperor is not shy getting his own hands dirty. He performs great feats of military courage, still fighting when up to the elbows in swamps and leading his men from the front. I probably have not made enough of the fact that Conrad is the first emperor since Otto II who was leading his men in battle. His bravery and quite frankly astonishing physique must have reminded the court of the warrior kings of old and provides a strong contrast to the sickly Henry II and the emaciated Otto III. With his warrior credentials came a taste for cruelty, especially towards the pagans. Based on a probably false accusation, the pagans had desecrated a wooden crucifix by beating it with fists, torn out the eyes and cut off the hands and feet, Conrad proceeded to apply the same treatment to actual humans, and not just a few of them. It is hard to get an understanding how contemporaries saw these kinds of events. It's interesting to note that Vipo, who was writing a eulogy of Conrad and always, always errs on the side of glorification of the emperor, is uncustomary hesitant about this episode. First, he emphasizes very strongly that the Liuzzi were in the right and that the Saxons had provoked them. And when it comes to describing Conrad's activities, he does not, as usual, describe it as the eyewitness he actually was, but he refers to a poem written by someone else who declares Conrad an avenger of the faith. I cannot shake the thought that Wipo and probably many others felt uneasy about these murderous expeditions. And in the end, these campaigns were not designed to integrate the Slavs into the empire. All they were meant to do is to increase the tribute they were paying. So clearly not Conrad's finest hour. Before we close the narrative on the eastern frontier, one last thing about Denmark. As mentioned before, Conrad developed a close relationship with King Canute ever since the two men had met at Conrad's coronation in 1027. This culminates in the marriage of Henry III to Canute's daughter Gunhilde, who was called Kunigunde in Germany. It had taken a little while for this marriage alliance to come together, as Conrad had initially attempted to find Henry a bride in Constantinople. Several missions had failed to produce a suitable candidate, not so much out of reluctance of the Byzantine court, but more out of the lack of suitable females. The ones with sufficient blood links to the emperor were too old, and Conrad was not prepared to settle for another Teofanu, or Teofano, as I am reliably informed she is called in Greek. That being said, Gunhilda was not second best. The marriage was important enough for Conrad that he offered a truly royal present to King Canute. The whole county of Schleswig, 
just across the border from Denmark. And this is the beginning of the Schleswig-Holstein question. A question so complex, Palmerstone is alleged to have said in 1864 that only three people ever understood the Schleswig-Holstein question. One was the prince consort, who was already dead at the time. The second was a German professor who had gone mad. And then Palmerstone himself, but he had forgotten. And here's my ambition for the podcast. When we get to the war over Schleswig-Holstein, we will all collectively understand the Schleswig-Holstein question, ideally without going mad in the process. But until then, still a long way to go. Next episode, we will conclude the reign of Conrad II, discuss his second Italian expedition, and look at more examples how Conrad's idea of the res publica manifests itself, putting the needs of the state above the commitments and relationships of the individual. And we will take a look at the greatest of Conrad's legacies, the magnificently beautiful Cathedral of Speyer, a building that will replace the Imperial Chapel in Aachen as the largest building north of the Alps. All that next week. I hope to see you then.